Hello and welcome to Cloud9Fin, the podcast for credit nerds and lovers of all things leveraged. I'm Will Cager-Smith and as it's our first US episode of 2023, I'm going to say Happy New Year, even though it's unforgivably late to be saying that. And I'm also going to welcome our deputy editor, David Bell, who's joining me to talk about some of the many deals and other fun bits of news we've seen so far this year. So welcome, David. Hi, Will. Thanks for having me on the show. All right. So I guess we should probably kick off with High Yield, which in a sort of low-key way has had a pretty amazing start to the year. The market's been rallying. I saw one stat the other day, which was that year-to-date returns for high yield are the best they've been since 2009. So that's pretty epic and part of the reason we've seen a a flood of new issuance over the past couple of weeks. Yeah, it's a pretty low bar after last year when new issue supply was just down so much. But, But yeah, things have opened up in the past week or so. And so far, it's mainly been the high yield bond market that has reopened. We've seen something in the region of 10 billion of supply already this month. Right. Yeah. The loan market has been a bit quieter. But in high yield, I think one of the banks published a research piece saying that Tuesday is in the day before yesterday was the most active day in high yield primary for more than a year or something like that. Yeah, exactly. So I think at a high level, there's two two main things driving it. Um, Firstly, borrowing costs have just come down a bit because rates have rallied. And also supply was just so low at the end of last year that investors have a lot of excess cash to put to work now. Right. So lots of pent up demand. And also, I think it's interesting that one of the sectors that has been most active in new issues so far this year is energy and in particular, E&P companies. Yeah, energy was was one of the best performing sectors in high yield last year. So it's maybe natural that there's some willingness to lend to that sector. Um, Several of the offshore drilling companies like Transocean or W&T Offshore have been able to tap the markets in January. Um, I think that says a lot about how investors have changed their views on on fossil fuel credits over the past year or so. Right, the big energy vibe shift. Right, because it it wasn't that long ago that some of these offshore drilling credits were kind of written off from a capital allocation standpoint. Investors Mm -hmm. thought they were you know, too risky, too many ESG headwinds, or you know, these offshore wells required too much investment relative to onshore wells. But you're starting to see that investors are softening those views with all of the positivity that is going on around energy at the moment, whether that's just the high commodity prices, as well as the fact that some of these companies are operating with much more restrained balance sheets than they they had done in the past. Right. Yeah. Like back in back in 2015, 2016 kind of time. Yeah. Um, And not to get too far off track here, but I think it's also interesting that this is coming at a time where there's this growing backlash against ESG. Like a few years ago, um, ESG was kind of heaped on top of the 2015, 2016 energy crisis as another reason not to lend to the sector. But in 2022, there was this huge backlash against ESG, especially from Republican state pensions, like poor old Larry Fink at BlackRock has been getting it from all sides. He was complaining about that on TV from Davos the other day. Yeah, I saw that he was saying that anti-ESG tax were getting personal and it's demonizing the issue. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's definitely getting kind of kind of ugly in terms of that that ESG backlash. But anyway, back to high yield, there's also been deals for Bombardier, which did a refi, and there was Sealed Air, which raised some debt for an acquisition. Yep. 
Um, I think both of those will definitely be an encouraging sign for borrowers that, you know, those deals can get done. In terms of the refinancing, there's not a lot of refi activity expected this year in, in high yield just because so much has already been termed out. There just isn't a huge amount of debt falling due this year. But um, Bombardier was one of the names that has a 2024 maturity. So um, they took that out. Uh, with a new a new bond deal, which was upsized to seven hundred fifty million dollars, right? And then there was some M and A funding from Sealed Air. Yep, uh, Sealed Air raised seven hundred seventy five million dollars of senior debt for their acquisition of Liquibox, which was a deal underwritten in November mm-hmm. last year. Um, so I think I think that bond deal is is showing that investors are still keen to fund acquisitions um, if they've been underwritten more recently that take into account, you know, current market levels and um, every, every all the uncertainties that people were grappling mm-hmm. with last year. Un- unlike the hung LBOs from early in 2022, that banks are still largely stuck with. Right. And before we move on, I should, I should say there was the deal from Dish Networks as well. They've got a lot of cash to raise for their 5G network and they were in the market too this week. I can't remember exactly how much they raised, but it was a pretty big chunk of debt, right? Yeah, they they have big capital needs, um, and they were, you know, that was they're one of the few names that were, when we were talking about potential refires or or funding needs in twenty twenty three. Dish is definitely a, a name that came up a lot, yeah. so um, it wasn't a massive surprise to see them in the market. Right. Yeah, there'll be a repeat issuer. Um, but let's talk about that hung LBO debt again because it's still a big problem for some of the the underwriters out there. Yeah, it's definitely still a big problem. I mean, the the big one is Twitter. Um, with you know something in the region of thirteen billion dollars of of hung debt, and mm-hmm. that seems to be a non-starter for now, at least in terms of the banks offloading it. Um, I, I think there's just very little chance that banks will want to hit any bids for that paper at current levels, just given perceptions around what what Elon Musk is doing over there. Right, um, yeah. selling off selling off kitchen equipment and phone booths and exactly that kind of thing. It, <laughs> yeah, but but there's there's some other good news coming out on on the the hunk deals. Um, we reported last week that the banks have been able to offload some bits and pieces of the hung Nielsen term loan at around eighty nine to ninety cents on the dollar. So right, yeah, and it sounds like they've made a meaningful dent in that position now, um, which they ended up I think holding a lot more on their balance sheet of that term loan than they originally intended to, just given market conditions and. Um, I guess it's encouraging to see that pricing on those block trades has been ticking up kind of slowly but surely. Yeah, it's it's definitely, uh, you know, a tiny bit of good news starting to come through for, for those underwriters. Um, and that's leading to, you know, we're hearing that banks are, are starting to make some moves on, on other deals, um, potentially syndications of LBO debt coming for, for Roper Technologies and Atlas Air, um, uh, supposedly in the works. But yeah, there's just alongside all of those, it's just a long, a, a long way to go before the decks are, are properly cleared and it's back to business as usual for, for the LBO, LBO market. Right, for sure. And I guess the other thing that doesn't really help with this is that the loan market is a lot slower than high yield right now. I mean, we mentioned that at the start, high yield's been kind of off to the races so far this year, but loans have just been a bit more sluggish. Right, it's definitely been slower. Um, we've seen you know a handful of amend and amend and extend type activity this this week rather than your full new issues but there is some lbo type loan financings in the market now there's 
a deal for Whitewater Whistler, which is a midstream pipeline business being acquired by iSquared. And then the Stone Peaks buyout of Intrado. Yeah, and the Intrado one in particular will be fun to watch. That's a carve out from Westcourt, which hasn't always been the fastest growing business, but there is a kind of moat around the Intrado entity that's been carved out. And what I've heard from people on that syndication so far is that the pricing looks pretty attractive. Even though it's not exactly a super strong growth story, it's a pretty stable business with you know some good sort of protection around it. And overall in the loan market, it sounds like demand is kind of it, it's there it's not like super crazy strong maybe like it is in the high yield bond market and one of the reasons that it's maybe a, a bit less um red hot than the high yield market is this lingering issue around clo formation which is sort of clouding the demand outlook in in leverage loans yeah that's that's the reinvestment crunch that we were talking about last year um right but that's definitely something that is going to put additional pressure on liquidity and demand for new issues or you know these amend and extends it's definitely a bit of a cap on on the technical side yeah exactly and since we're talking about clos we should probably mention this other us uncertainty around the clo market because of the naic's proposal to increase capital charges on clo debt right that's, that's another potential headwind for insurance companies to invest in CLOs. Um, we reported on this last year, but but basically the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, which oversees state insurance regulators, wants to impose its own rating methodology for insurers' CLO investments. And that would likely increase the capital charges those investors have to hold against their investments in junior CLO debt and equity investments. Right. Although I think it would also decrease capital charges for some more senior CLO debt, right? Yeah, that's correct. But it's the it's the mezzanine CLO debt that people are most worried about because that's the part of the market that insurance companies are, are most active in. Yeah. And it's also interesting that the NAIC has been in the press this week for a similar proposal around collateralized fund obligations, CFOs. And I've followed this story, but nowhere near as closely as you. So maybe you can explain it better. Yeah, so collateralized fund obligations or CFOs are essentially regular private equity funds repackaged into bonds. Just like a CLO is a leveraged loan portfolio repackaged into bonds. And insurance companies have invested in these CFOs and the NIC mm-hmm. is proposing to provide their own ratings for these instruments, which would determine how much capital insurers have to hold against them. And just like with the NEIC proposal on CLOs, it sounds like people are pretty unhappy about this because it's it's going to make it harder to do business potentially. But I know we covered this last year. Let's just recap. What's the NEIC's reasoning behind these proposals? I think it's similar reasoning for the CFO proposal as it is for the CLO proposal. Yeah, it's, it's similar, but and it, and it really depends on on who you ask on this, this, the NAIC would say that it's about reducing ratings arbitrage. And the argument for that is basically that CLO debt or CFO debt should carry the same capital charge as investing in the underlying assets. And they also say that there's too much variation in, in methodologies across the different rating agencies. The flip side, if you asked, you know, investors, lawyers or, or bankers who don't like these proposals, they'd say that this doesn't really take into account all the benefits of 
diversification and credit protection that a CLO structure allows. And they see it more as the NAIC just trying to generate fees from the industry. Right. Yeah, the FT had a story about the the crackdown on CFOs this week. And there was a quote in there from someone calling it a land grab by the NAIC, which is the exact same phrase that one of our sources used in our story on the CLO proposal last year. So we're not just pontificating here. There are multiple people saying this. Yeah, because the NAIC essentially could charge or could potentially charge insurance companies to apply their own methodology to you know these investment books um so that's why people are unhappy about it but i think it's also worth pointing out that there might be some bad blood between the naic and the clo industry because the the proposals that were put forward by the naic are being driven by someone who used to be a moody's employee and then became a whistleblower over its over its rating practices yeah it's it's interesting. We mentioned that in our story last year, and I think it's some of the narrative around the CFO stuff in particular is reminiscent of the narratives around the subprime crisis. Basically, people arguing that rating agencies are doing this weird alchemy of turning risky assets into highly rated investments. We're seeing that that kind of language coming back again in in these proposals. Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. Um, and I, I think there's lots of people in the CLO industry who who fight back quite hard on, on this kind of stuff. Like the LSTA already came out against the NAIC proposal last year. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if we, we see some private equity funds mounting a more organized campaign against these new CFO proposals too. Yeah, maybe. And speaking of asset classes that get stick for being risky, we should probably talk about private credit as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, still seeing private credit suck up some of the supply that might have otherwise gone to the syndicated loan market. Just today, we published a story about milk specialties, which has gone to the private credit market to fund its buyout by Butterfly Equity. So that's an interesting one. That acquisition was quite a long time coming. We covered it back in May last year, when they first launched the sale process, kind of hired bankers to get the process going. And it moved quite slowly. And people were a bit concerned about whether the company could meet their targets and continue the sort of, it wasn't just a growth spurt. I mean, it was it was quite quite crazy growth they had between 2021 and 2022. Um, so people were concerned about whether they could maintain that level of growth. But then the company came out with some positive earnings late last year that showed good sort of continued momentum. And it sounds like that helped them close a sale to this uh, private equity firm, Butterfly. And also, it sounds like they wanted to close the debt financing really quickly, given that they'd already been on the on the road for so long. Yeah, so I guess in that case, private credit is probably the the best option for them. Yeah, or maybe maybe the at the very least the quickest option. Um, although I should point out that sources are still telling us that it's a lot harder to do big deals in private credit than it used to be. It takes more lenders to make up a club because. A lot of firms are just retrenching a bit and writing smaller checks and just generally being more risk averse. Yeah, that's that's something we saw with the Cooper software deal at the end of last year, which was $2.6 billion um, private credit deal. So pretty chunky. Um, but whereas, you know, in early 2022, you might have seen only a handful of lenders involved in a, a deal that size. This This one went to something like 20 accounts. So, you know, seeing smaller ticket sizes. 
I, th- I think um, overall, though, um, people are expecting private credit continues to be that kind of backstop that it was last year. Uh, you know, even if even if lenders on the private side have also pulled back to some degree um, at the end of last year. Yeah, and even if terms are now getting a lot tighter after years and years of loose credit agreements, which I won't discuss in detail right now because we've got a story coming out on that soon in the next few days. But anyway, something to look out for. Yeah, looking forward to that one. And and just before we wrap up, I think something else to look out for on the private credit side would be companies that are coming out of SPAC arrangements um, where those those mergers might have fallen through after the, the boom in SPAC deal making um, and those companies might need capital and could could be prime candidates for private credit too. Right, yeah. I really thought we'd seen the back of the SPAC. It felt like almost every story I read back in 2021 was about private credit or SPACs. So, oh yeah, the, the SPAC stories are back. Yeah, awesome. I'm so glad. But um, yeah, on that note, let's wrap it up there. But thank you, David. Always, always a pleasure having you on the pod. Thanks, Will. My pleasure. All right, that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks for tuning in. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends, colleagues, clients, or anyone else you think might be interested. And if you want to be on the podcast or if you have ideas for stuff we could cover on it, hit us up at team at ninefin.com. We read every email. And don't forget to check in with my colleague Kat Hidalgo in London next week for an update on all things leveraged and European. I'll be back the week after that. So until then, as always, take care.